does it feel comfortable to um, say happy Father's Day to God this morning? Um, I'm thinking, you know, if he's here right now, what does he want to happen? And basically, he wants to love you. Maybe cup your face in his hand and just say peace to you and cause it to go right down into your soul. So happy Father's Day, Father. Esther chapter 6. Now, uh, let's begin like our favorite television series. In previous episodes. <laughs> now, you know, I, I watch the really dark series, um, Fargo, The Strain. Um, Esther is the hero. hero and uh, she's a hero even though she's only taken one heroic step so far. Her cousin has controlled her growing up as children are controlled by parents, only she has no parents. But we've seen a turnaround there because the last time they communicated, she commanded and he obeyed. So she's really become herself. She's found her voice and she's behaving like a queen. Um, he's still, he still is her counselor, but she is now more in control. Haman is the villain, and he's also the king's favorite, which is unfortunate. If Mordecai, although there was an order by the king for everyone to bow when Haman passed by, if Mordecai would not bow, and the reason he gives is that he was a Jew, then Haman decided that all Jews were his enemies. They don't respect me, they won't bow to me because they're Jewish. And so he devised a scheme to annihilate all the Jews in Persia. And Esther has begun to work on undoing this evil scheme. But now there's a new complication that's entered into the story. And that is Haman, out of this deep resentment and, and hatred for Mordecai, is the next morning, it's, it's now nighttime, or evening is falling, kerplunk, and um, uh, the next morning he's going to go to the king and request permission to execute Haman on a gallows that he's built in his backyard. I'm sorry. Execute Mordecai. Mordecai, thank you. Execute Mordecai uh, uh, on his gallows 70 feet high. So what can be done about this? All right, Esther's working on saving her people, and the date is still some time off. But this is immediate. Um, Mordecai has only until morning to do something, but he doesn't even know what Haman is up to. Esther's off to a good start, but she hasn't even presented her case to the king yet. So Haman is still very powerful and influential with the king, and in the morning he goes to the king and he's going to ask to have Mordecai's head, and of course the king is going to say yes. All right, so verse 1 of Esther chapter 6 during that night, the king could not sleep 
So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. What a great opening line during that night. The, the tension increases in the story as time is running out, you know, and people sleep at night. There's, there's no action that occurs during the night. This is what we expect, especially uh, when there's no electricity, no street lights, when it goes dark, people have to stay indoors because it's, it's dangerous to go outside, and, uh, except with you know, these torches. But um, we're not expecting anything to happen through the night. We just wonder what will happen in the morning. But the king can't sleep. And the king's troubled sleep is a theme that is consistent in these exile stories. When the pharaoh could not sleep, it opened a door of opportunity for Joseph to be promoted in Egypt. When Nebuchadnezzar could not sleep, it opened a door of opportunity for Daniel to be promoted. And later on, when King Darius, the Persian king, could not sleep, it gave Daniel another opportunity for promotion. So, um, again, this is one of those things that connects the story of Esther to these others. I, if I thought I had time, I'd go into type scenes, because this is definitely a type scene. The king can't sleep, and, and the hero comes forward to interpret the dream. Only in this type scene, there's no dream. And no hero comes forward as physically present. But there is a hero here. Verse 2, it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing, nothing has been done for him. Rather than fight his insomnia, Xerxes decided to do his homework. Uh, he ordered the accountant to be awakened and brought to him so that they could review the records. And why would a king do this in the middle of the night? Well, someone's going to be reading to him the records, and I think he invited him to come and read records so that he'd get drowsy and fall back to sleep. <laughs> Though it is possible that he had a, a whole to-do list that he had not gotten to, and that's the purpose. Of it. Let's, let's go over the records of, of things not yet resolved. So going through the chronicles of recent events and connect that with the gallows, that Haman has already built and he's coming to, to talk to the king about. The Gallows and the Book of Chronicles takes us back to chapter 2 where when we were there, I told you it was a foreshadow and it was that very time when these, these two uh, guards at the gate were conspiring to assassinate the king. That was recorded in the Chronicles, these same records that the king reads this night, and those two men were hung on the gallows. And now we come back to the gallows and the chronicles. And, and Esther does this kind of thing again and again. This time, 
um, before, it was um, the gallows for the would-be assassins and the record book for uh, Mordecai. This time, the gallows are for Mordecai, whose name comes up in the book of records. It was found written, the storyteller says. And, and this statement, it was found written, sounds innocuous, uh, anemic, harmless. Uh, I don't think that for us, hearing the story, it triggers any specific response. It's incidental. It's unrelated to the, the plot, the reading, and it was found written. It's a big deal. When that event occurred earlier, the storyteller did not make a big deal out of it. Just treated it briefly. There it is. This is what happened. It, it, it all happens in just like the space of a couple verses. But now as the records are being written, Mordecai's name pops up again. Um, he's been discussed in the previous scene. Haman and his wife Zeresh and his friends are talking about Mordecai. And now his name is coming up again in the king's courtroom. When it's read, Xerxes realizes this is still an open file. And so he asks, what honor or dignity has been shown to Mordecai who saved my life? And they said, nothing has been done to honor him. And it's possible at that moment he, he felt, well, this must be the reason why I could not sleep. This is not right. This needs to be taken care of. Now, whether intentionally or um, incidentally, the king's attendants seem to take sides. They are for Mordecai and Esther and against Haman. Very positive when they talk about either Mordecai or Esther. Negative with Haman. So now that he needs the help of a creative mind, the king says to his attendants, who's in the outer court? And they said, Haman has come to see you. See, he wants an early start. He wants to finish this business before he goes off to the feast because that's the plan. You know, once he has Mordecai out of the way, he's going to have a good day. And he's going to be able to enjoy the feast and the honor of being the only prince in all of Persia to be invited to be with the king and his queen. <clears throat> it's possible that he came early to, to get in the head of the line and to catch the king just as soon as he woke up and got down to business. So he had already arrived and he's waiting in the outer court. Verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? <laughs> I wonder. Then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let him bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. Um, there are bas-reliefs of uh, Babylonian horses with uh, crest ornaments on their head that exist to this day. So that's what we're talking about, a royal crown on the horse's head. 
and let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is the final setup before Haman's total reversal. Notice that as he comes into the inner court, the, the royal court, there's no pleasantries, there's no greeting from the king, hail king, uh, come forward, Haman. But the king gets down to business immediately. The issue's on the, so much on the forefront of Xerxes' mind that he just blurts out the question without any explanation or details. He doesn't say, what should I do for Mordecai since I want to honor him greatly? He would have gotten a very different answer. Um, so in throwing it out there without any explanation, Haman has no context for this question. And he has to guess. And when he thinks about it, he thinks, I'm the only person that fills the bill. He's, he has promoted me above everyone else. So... Um, he could not imagine anyone else other than himself. When he was talking to his wife and friends earlier uh, in chapter 5, verse 11, he's, he's telling them about all the ways that the king has already promoted him and, and honored him and, and shown him respect and deference. So, Haman has reached his summit. He's now dreaming of this ultimate honor that is within his reach. He's about to be paraded around in the king's robe on the king's horse. And uh, as the announcement is made, this is who the king, this is how the king treats the person he wants to honor. Notice that the word royal has returned. It's been in almost every chapter. Here it's the royal robe, the royal horse. And it's difficult for us to understand how big this is. If in our culture you asked for a ride, in the president's limousine and the secret service heard that and they shot you <laughs> because you're trying to take the place of the president, you'd understand in Persia what that meant to wear the king's robe that he's worn. This is only for the king. In fact, the word royal here translates a Hebrew word that is oftentimes translated kingdom, malkut. It's related to the word king. Malak. So anything that belongs to the king, it's also translated reign, um, anything that belongs to the king is royal. But that's the whole nature of it. It belongs to the king, and no one else can touch it. No one else can ride on the king's horse. Okay? So what he's asking for is really big, clothing that's fit only for a king. Uh, and, and there cannot be a greater honor. So, why would the, the king go for this? Well, Mordecai had saved his life. So, he was awarded the king's honor. The king honored him uh, with the same honor that he enjoyed because he wouldn't be there if not for him. That kind of honor in a culture does not go away. Uh, one of the commentaries that I've been reading 
the, it's an old one, so this is understandable, but the commentator says, and then Mordecai went back to what he was and nothing came of this. It's like a moment's glory, his 15 minutes in the spotlight, and then he goes back to the city gate with no change. It, but being honored like that changes everything. In an honor-shame culture, honor is social capital. It gets you into places that the average person cannot go. It opens doors for you. It gives you the best seat in the opera or whatever. I mean, it, it, there are many perks that come with honor. It's more important than money. Honor like this is more important than money. So it, it, this is going to last for Mordecai. This, this honor is not just a glow that fades. It stays. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Okay, this is Haman's sudden fall into the abyss. And from this point on, Haman's bad luck snowballs. And I say bad luck tongue-in-cheek, but um, everything moves rapidly for Haman. He is commanded by the king, act quickly. Do just like you said, and, and get on it right now. Um, afterwards, he hurried home. He, he could not leave the public square fast enough. He could not leave the palace fast enough. He hurried home. And while he's home, talking with his wife and counselors, their conversation is interrupted as the king's attendants arrive and hastily brought Haman back to the palace. So he's being moved around from one thing to the next at a rapid pace. I'm sure that when those words came out of the king's mouth, okay, go grab the robe and the horse and do this for Mordecai the Jew. I'm, I'm certain that Haman was shocked. That he could not believe his ears. There's probably a moment's pause when he just was staring into space. And, and he went from shocked to devastated. Mordecai, the Jew. now he was coming to ask for Mordecai's head, and now he's told he has to proclaim Mordecai's honor. He had designed the honor that was going to be paid to his enemy, even as he had designed a gallows for his enemy that he himself would hang on. The reversal. He'd come to request um, Mordecai's execution, and now he has to proclaim his honor. And the king says to him, do not fall short in anything of all that you have spoken. In other words, this gives added emphasis to how important it is to the king to honor Mordecai. Now, the last time we read anything or heard anything about Mordecai's clothing... He was wearing sackcloth and ashes. The, the clothing that symbolizes great sorrow. 
And in this reversal that's underway, he goes from ashes and sackcloth to the royal robe and the king's horse with the crown. He goes from poverty to royalty, from, from nothingness to grandeur. And at the same time, Haman is moving the other direction. Um, Haman, who was lifted up, is being brought low. And Mordecai, who was taken down, is being lifted up. King Xerxes was apparently unaware of the conflict between Haman and Mordecai. But the people at the gate, they would also be amazed as Haman walks through the gate holding the, the leash of the horse that Mordecai is riding dressed in royalty and Haman is proclaiming his, his greatness. This is what the king does for the man he delights to honor. And, and these attendants at the gates, they had asked Mordecai, why aren't you bowing? And they went to Haman and they said, have you noticed that when you go past the gate, Mordecai does not bow. So now they see this and you know, the wrong person's on the horse and the wrong person is making the proclamation, the reversal. Verse 12. Oh, no, someone's breaking into my car. Peace. <laughs> A duet. We are so blessed. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay, verse 12. Someone go shoot that car. <laughs> then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. Mordecai, can you hear me? Because yeah. I can raise my voice louder like I'm yelling at my grandkids. Oh. <laughs> Haman and Mordecai now return to their respective places. Neither one of them is driving the story at this point. Mordecai had no plans about this. He, he had no idea what was going on. Haman had very different plans that did not work out at all. They're being carried along by the story itself waiting to see what unfolds, and neither one of them knows what will come next. Haman's head is covered, and this also indicated agonizing grief. It's how David left Jerusalem when his son Absalom revolted. Um, but it also foreshadows something that's going to come in the next chapter. Here he, he covers his head voluntarily to show his grief. Um, and it becomes a symbol of his demise. His mourning is contrasted to his earlier expectations. Uh, towards the end of chapter 5, his wife and counselor said, look, execute Mordecai, and then you can go to the feast of Esther joyfully. But now here he is running home mourning, not at all joyful. 
And all these things point to the ironic reversals of this story. Verse 13. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Haman seeks consolation from his wife, Zeresh, and his wise men. And this begins like his previous conversation with them. He, um, his previous consultation, he gives him a full account of what has happened. And again, Mordecai is at the center of his unhappiness. Well, here it's much more serious. And then they give him their thoughts and insights. And they don't speculate about what needs to happen now. And they don't give him advice like they did before. They only have for him dire predictions. If Mordecai, they say, is of Jewish origins, well, we know that he is. In fact, they knew that he was because in their previous conversation, Haman had said, I cannot be happy. Well, Mordecai the Jew is still alive. So why do they say if he's Jewish if they already know he is? Well, this is the way we construct a logical argument. If, then. We use those clauses all the time. Um, if all humans are mammals and Fred is a human, then Fred is a mammal. If, then. If Mordecai is Jewish, seeing that he is, then you can expect this to follow with, with what's come so far. And, and they use the word fall two times. In other words, they're saying, if you've stumbled here, then you're going to go all the way down. And why is that? Um, because sooner or later, the king is going to find out that the people Haman had convinced him to exterminate were the Jews. Remember, Haman did not specify the Jews previously. And when the king finds that out, and here's this Jew who saved his life, and unbeknownst to either the king or Haman at this point, here is this queen of his who's also Jewish, um, then Haman doesn't stand a chance. Haman hears the bad news from them. And these are people who... They're for him. His wife loves him. They would like to bring encourage, encouragement, but they, they see where this is going. They predict correctly. He hears this. He does not have time to absorb it while they're still speaking. The servants of the king arrive to hurry him to Esther's feast. And this is another foreshadow of what's coming in the next chapter while the king is still speaking, while the words are going out of his mouth, it says in, in great graphic detail. Okay, so this chapter is where the tables are turned, or at least where the tables begin to be turned. And these important shifts occur before Esther has intervened. 
I mean, she hasn't played her part yet. But already the turning of the giant wheels has begun. To me, that's so stinking cool. Um, <laughs> or refreshingly cool. Or, but she is about to expose Haman, but that won't be phase one of the reversal. The groundwork has already been laid, and she will just be building on it. And you say, well, the king intervened. No, the king didn't intervene. He, was, he wasn't thinking about her trauma at all, or, or her mission, or what she had. To, and he wasn't granting a new edict regarding that. He was just taking care of one person because he could not sleep. And he had to get up and go over his records, and here's this open case, and he has to deal with it. A lot of activity has been going on. And it wasn't Esther's, or Mordecai's, or Haman doing. They were not even aware of what was going on. And even if they had an idea of what was going on, there's nothing they could do to stop it. The wheels were turning and the controls were not in their hands. Now, if you're Esther and Mordecai and you're trying to prevent, prevent your doom and the doom of all your people, it's a scary place to be, to not be in control. Well, what does this mean? This is terrifying. What, what? When Jacob's sons come back from Egypt and they say, the man that we spoke to said we cannot return unless we bring Benjamin, our brother, with us. So either we're going to sit here and starve when the food runs out or we have to go back to Egypt and take Benjamin with us. Jacob says, all these things are against me. And he has no idea that his son Joseph is alive, watching out for him and his family, and they're going to be blessed and prosperous while the rest of the world is suffering from the famine. What he sees on the surface in that moment, in, in his circumstances, it's all against him. He says, I've lost Joseph. Now I've lost my son uh, Simeon, all these things are against me. And they're not. This is how it looks. But the wheels are turning there, too. And he's not in control. He feels that out of control. All these things are against me. There's nothing I can do about this. The miracle of providence is that it takes place backstage. We don't see providence in action. And, and what's providence? It's the way that God works in what looks like the normal flow of natural laws, cause and effect unfolding, and uh, looks like the normal circumstances of life, but God weaving through them his design to produce the outcome that he wants which is for our benefit. And God is off stage through this whole story. He's not mentioned once in the book. But from behind the scenes, he controls what's, what's going to happen. You know, we have this long-range view of providence that, that someday it's all going to make sense. 
when we're in heaven. Someday it's going to come out all right when we're in heaven. Now, forgive me, Jim. If you're Jim, oh no, it's all great right now. If you're me, <laughs> if you're me, it's like, oh, well, in heaven, this won't be happening. Okay? <laughs> so, but um, I have, the, I shouldn't project on you, I have this long range view of God's providence that when I reach heaven, everything's going to be made right. It's not that easy to see right now if that is so. And it's not easy to see right now that everything is all right. If it's going to be all right, then right now it is all right because this is what's being worked together for the good that come. It may not feel all right, and humanly, our response to things that happen may be agony, which is appropriate because we are human and our nervous system was designed that way. But it's through trust in God in these agonies that we grow and that he does his work in us also. And sometimes... We are so stripped of everything that all God leaves us is trust. God, you removed everything from my life that was important to me. I have nothing now except my trust in you. And you know, God wants that more than anything else. He wants your trust. If you can stop in in a hard time and take some deep breaths and say, I don't get, get this at all, Lord, but I'm going to trust you, and I trust you now. And you make that commitment, you'll find that with trust, there comes peace. Not the peace of everything making sense and working out. You don't see that yet. But the peace of someone is in control who's able to handle that kind of power and who's able to handle what's going on and bring out good. And I think that God intends for our trust to grow great enough that we can rejoice even in adversities. None of us do this perfectly. And some of you are way ahead of me because I get stubborn and I go, no. I'm going to be pissed right now, and, and I'm going to be despairing. It's my right as a human, um, uh, but, but I do trust you. I'm just going to be uh, Eeyore all the way through. Um, oh, this is terrible. <laughs> because it comforts me. <laughs> Not really. I hope this doesn't sound like a fortune cookie, but God is doing something right now, somewhere, for you that you know nothing about. It's going to work in your favor, and no one can shut the door he's opening. Or 
open the door that he is shutting. The spiritual journey is to come to a place of trust in the promises. All things work together for good to those who love God. They're called according to his purpose. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in the future today and have hope and have joy. I'm I'm going to borrow something from Jim now because it has been so meaningful to me. Julian of Norwich was a Christian mystic who lived in the 14th century. She had three requests that she made of God, and one of them was a near-death experience. Um, She wanted to come so close to the, the suffering of Jesus that she wanted to almost die. She wanted everyone around her to believe that she was dying and the priest to administer uh, holy unction or last rites and, uh, and then recover. But she wanted to have that experience so she could enter more fully into the passion of our Lord Jesus. Well, in her near-death experience, she received a revelation of Jesus Christ which was followed by 15 more revelations that she spent the next 20 years writing about. Uh, These are entitled The Showings. And um, during this time, she came to see how the only thing that stood in her way of making more progress in God was sin. And then she saw how how sin stands in the way of all of us. And she thought, well, God is omniscient. Certainly he could have figured out a way to fulfill his plan without sin being this issue, without it being a problem. She said that she was probably dwelling on it too much and she knew she was dwelling on it too much because it was so disturbing for her she could not let it go. So, you know, know, maybe she's getting a little obsessive here about this until Jesus appeared to her and he said to her, sin is inevitable. And she says, he gave me all that I needed. He said, sin is inevitable, but all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. Would you stand with me, please? Jim concludes every Wednesday and Thursday night with those words, and I drive home with them ringing like bells in my head. All shall be well. All shall be well. May the Lord our God bless us. Take away all evil and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.